Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Today, we're going to be talking to Jeremy Snyder, who is the founder and CEO at Firetail. Firetail is an API security platform, and we're going to be talking to Jeremy about API security. But before we do that, let's say hi. Jeremy, how are you today? Hey, Mark. I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, my pleasure. Whereabouts are you located? Uh, Washington, D.C. area, Northern Virginia. Okay. Well, I'm on the other Washington, Washington yeah. State. So, hey, you're uh, a little bit farther into your Friday afternoon than I am. So, yeah. Um, awesome. Hey, um, I, I looked at your bio and it says that you speak five different languages. How does yeah. an American end up speaking five different languages? Well, well, let's start with half American. So that's okay. one, of the, uh, one of the quick cheats to get a bonus one from, right. from the start. But uh, yeah, my mother's from Finland. My father was American. Um, I grew up with broad exposure to Finnish. Um, didn't speak that great actually growing up, but spoke some. Uh, went back to Finland in my late teenage years, did a couple years of undergrad there. Um, and I've just kind of really kept it up ever since as best I can. Um, I will say, though, I was out at RSA this week. I was talking to some people about what I'm working on, and I, I don't quite have the Finnish vocabulary to discuss API security in depth. Uh, <laughs> like the, but yeah, then aside from that, I spent uh, some time as a kid growing up in Europe um, outside of just Finland and the family connection there. Uh, my father was an army doctor. We spent some time in Germany living near the French border. I came away with that with actually better French than German and then just kind of picked up a couple other languages along the way. Uh, once you know one romance language, turns out it's not that challenging to learn another one. So picked up Spanish and Portuguese. And um, I, I saw your bio as well. And you've got some localization industry experience as I have, right? Yeah. So I, I did notice on on LinkedIn that um, you'd done some work with SDL early on or with Trados, I, I believe. Yeah. Pre-acquisition Trados. That's right. I was with Trados for about seven years early in my career, actually. What were you doing for them? Uh, so I worked my way up through network engineering. So I okay. joined Trotto certainly from the linguistics background with the thinking that, hey, I'd do something around software development. Turns out I'm not a very good coder. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so I started in kind of a hybrid customer support and uh, network and IT support role, really jumped after about a year full on into the network and IT side of things. Uh, so, you know, implemented IT systems at scale. We were growing very rapidly in those years. We went from something like 30, 40 people when I joined to about 250 over the next couple of years. And so, you know, we're just building out a lot of infrastructure in those years, a lot of security. Um, and uh, yeah, that's really what I did. I will say I, I did pride myself through that whole run. I actually knew how our products worked. I was able to talk to customers about them. Randomly, I would find myself in scenarios where... You know, you talk to somebody who worked in a localization department about, so let's say, translation memory or terminology databases and so on. And I still still actually knew that stuff. So I really did pride myself on on understanding what we did and the problems we were solving for our customers. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, for those who aren't familiar with the localization industry, that's the, the name of the industry that handles translation and interpretation services and some other kind of other language-related services. And you typically have companies who provide the services, but then you also have the technology providers. Um, and Trados at that point, and still is the, um, the, the probably the, the market leading tool for to kind of f facilitate translation workflows. I noticed that you lived in Singapore as well. 
I did. Yeah, I spent, uh, got there in 2008, left at the very end of 2012. Um, really had a great time there. We had an opportunity to go there with a video game company that I was working at at the time where we had a lot of our player growth coming out of Asia, had an opportunity to open up kind of regional headquarters for APAC and uh, we jumped on it. And it was a fantastic opportunity for myself, for my wife, my kids, the whole family. We really enjoyed our time there. Yeah, I'm really surprised that we haven't crossed paths sooner because I, I was know. in Singapore from 2008 to 2012 uh, with my family. And then we ended up moving to Japan after that, only yeah. to return to the States in 2017. So I'm uh, I'm sure that we know some people in common. Were you active at all, like in the uh, American Chamber of Commerce, Singapore? No, uh, was not very much. I was working originally for a German company that sent me there. So we did a lot of work on that side. And then I did go uh, spend some time at Amazon Web Services right after that office opened in Singapore. Amazon had some ACCJ stuff, but I was never part of the team that participated in that. So that, that may be one of the reasons. Um, otherwise, yeah, it is kind of surprising. Yeah. And I, I, I'm just taking a quick look. It looks like we've got like 10 mutual connections. I'll dig into that later because I, I know we, we must know some people in common. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. So, hey, so, um, I mean, you know, you have, it looks like a very entrepreneurial background. Uh, you know, you've lived in Europe, you lived in Asia. Yeah. Um, what, what's the fascination or the interest in API security? Where did that come from? Yeah. So it came out of not the immediate past job that the immediate past job was with a company that acquired us. But the one right before that, I was working in cloud security. Um, so to kind of rewind a little bit, we just mentioned a minute ago, I, I spent some time at Amazon Web Services earlier on. You know, I had come out of doing a lot of really heavy duty IT stuff for about 10, 12 years leading up to that, right? And I was kind of sick of data centers, sick of infrastructure, et cetera. But then this AWS thing came on and it was really a new way to think about it and a really a new way to do data centers and infrastructure and all of that. So I made that switch over and I've kind of never looked back. I stayed very active in the cloud ecosystem. I, I you know, after Amazon, I spent some time with a system integrator that helped people migrate. But the long and short of it is I've been doing kind of AWS ecosystem cloud stuff for 10 plus years at this point. The reason I bring that up is that you know, along the way, we helped a number of companies really shift their backend infrastructure over to the cloud. And we would typically see kind of, let's call them like waves of adoption or let's say waves of cloud maturity as we went along. And the first wave would really be like, let me replicate my data center into the cloud. And so literally customers would kind of look at their on-prem or their data center, colo, what have you, infrastructure. They would map out, you know, kind of server to server or server to virtual machine in the case of AWS. And they would really replicate that infrastructure. And they'd kind of go along with that model for a while. And they'd be like, oh, great. It's, it's really great to be out of managing hardware. I don't have to you know, go anywhere at 2 a.m. in the morning, dig my car out of snow in the driveway to get to a data center to reboot a server, something I've had to do multiple times. Um, and they would get to some value add from just getting out of hardware management. They'd get a little bit of value add from the flexibility of being able to you know, ramp up additional infrastructure in about a you know, two minute window, things like that. But then they would realize that they hadn't really changed anything on the operational side of how they were using that infrastructure. They still had to do patching, they still had to do maintenance, upgrades, all of that kind of stuff. So then the second wave, as I like to think about it, is they start looking down that infrastructure stack and they're like, well, you know, I've got a, a database server over there and I'm really managing the entire 
uh, the, the entire server infrastructure around it. And I see there are these offerings from Amazon where they take care of patching and upgrades and backups and, um, you know, automated recovery functions and so on. Maybe I'll start embracing some of that. So that's kind of the second wave. They look at opportunities to make certain parts of it more efficient. And then as they, they'll go along with that for a while and then they'll realize, boy, that that front end application infrastructure is really kind of bogging us down and we've got still all these virtual machines and we still have to install our agents and patch them and update them and so on. I see these serverless and container offerings. I wonder what they're about because honestly, most people still, even when they make the move to AWS, they still run their kind of server or server equivalent infrastructure at about five to 10% utilization. And that's really inefficient and a lot of wasted money and wasted resources. And so they'll see these, you know, serverless constructs that could just kind of sit there dormant 99% of the time and they fire up for the five minutes when they're needed. And then they go back to sleep and you're not paying for that sleep time and so on. So they start to move into that model over time and, you know, different organizations will go at different speeds and it might take a couple of years. It might be as quick as one year that you come to that realization, but you typically get there in the end. And we saw that time and again at, at the previous company, Divi Cloud, and at the system integrator I worked at before that. The reason for all that long explanation is when you get to that third wave stage, you start to really change your application architecture. And when you do that, we started to see this common thread that whatever path you went, whatever kind of changes you made, you always end up with an API sitting on a network. And that API will be conducting a business transaction and it will be processing data. And a lot of the times that data is actually critical data that can be personally identifiable, that can have, you know, a lot of uh, um, sensitive information in it. Um, you know, I just give the example to kind of put it in context for people. Every time you order food off of a mobile app like um, like Deliveroo or Just Eat or Uber Eats or what have you, you make one transaction and what you think of as one transaction has actually kicked off about 20 API calls between three or more third parties to coordinate that order, right? So you send the order to Uber Eats, Uber Eats sends it to the restaurant, gets acknowledgement, sends your payment info to a third party credit card uh, processor, gets acknowledgement back sends it out to a delivery driver, including, let's say, like your home address, right? Um, so all of that gets coordinated, usually over API calls. And these were the patterns that we were seeing on the cloud. You know, I started thinking about this problem back in 2019. I was with another company at the time. We then got acquired. Um, and then I, you know, kind of waited my time until I had an opportunity to think about starting something new. And, and yeah, that's, that's what brought me back to, to uh, API security. Well, that was, thank you for that very detailed explanation. And it, it does make sense. And I, I agree with you. The, it seems like we're just um, initiating pro possibly one API call and, and most consumers don't even think about it that way, but we're just, right. in, you know, one, one kind of uh, exchange of data or information, but it does trigger multiple different, you know, uh, calls on a variety of platforms. So, yeah. um, you know, but what are the, what are the major security risks in, in inherent in that kind of process? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one that I think there's a lot of confusion around, to be honest, because there are a lot of companies out there talking about API security right now. I just came from RSA and I think about at least one third of the companies exhibiting there were talking about API security. And look, there are many different aspects to API security. And part of the reason is an API is the front end to an application. 
So there's an application security element to it. But an API also sits on a network and you know the traffic goes over a network. And an API may sit behind certain other network constructs like a web application firewall or an API gateway or a load balancer. So there are, there's network traffic and network security considerations around it. The way I tend to think about it as being kind of most impactful is really actually looking at the data from the last 10 or so years. Over the last 10 or so years, my team and I, well, we haven't been around for 10 years, but we've collected data from the last 10 or so years of all of the publicly disclosed API breaches that we could find. Uh, breaches and, let's say, responsible disclosure from security researchers. We've kind of collated them into a master spreadsheet that we use to analyze. We tend to look at kind of all the information we can find about what went wrong in those scenarios, try to assign a little bit of kind of, let's say, primary breach vector, secondary breach vector. Um, and there's a couple things that we've found. So to your question, you know, what is API security all about? What's important to know about in it? The first thing that I'll tell you is the most important thing to understand is that most of the problems are flaws in the application, in something, let's say, necessarily in the design of the application or in the implementation of the application. That could be a authentication protocol that was sufficient when the API was private, but once it got exposed publicly, that was insufficient authentication for a public-facing API. There's been several cases of that. One of the more common ones is authorization. So we've authenticated you. We know that it's Mark issuing this order to our you know, mobile food delivery app, but we don't know what Mark should and should not be able to do. Should Mark be able to order food for himself? Sure, absolutely. Should Mark be able to order food to Jeremy? Maybe, maybe not. You know, that might depend on something in the application, like are Mark and Jeremy part of the same network? Are they on a shared order? Things like that. Uh, there could also be questions like, can Mark cancel other people's orders? Well, again, maybe, maybe not. I mean, probably not. But, you know, there could be scenarios where Mark is an admin or Mark is a customer support person who um, is fielding a request from a customer and might need those permissions. So there's kind of multiple aspects to an API. One well, is, you know, can I, is can I just cut do? in? Yeah, please. Can I just cut in for a second. And I'm, I'm um, not very technical at all, but sure. what you seem to be describing are issues with the application itself, not necessarily Correct. the API. And so it, it, am I right or wrong on that? And just, you know, kind of help me out though. Yeah, they are application logic problems. The reason that we introduce them as API problems is that nine times out of 10, the architecture that we see is there is a decoupling between the API itself and the application. So you communicate with the API, the API then triggers logic in the application to execute something. So for intents and purposes, they're kind of one and the same from the user or the consumer perspective. And it is at the transition layer between the API and the application that these permissions need to be evaluated. And that's why I tend to lump them onto the API side of things, not let's say in the application proper, if that makes sense. It's a subtle distinction, but hopefully that gives a little bit more De clarity. Definitely. Thank you for that. Yeah. Happy to. Um, so yeah, just picking up there, you know, really that, that issue of kind of, you know, what permissions Mark has, what functions he can execute, what data he can execute those functions on. And actually the, the intersection of that is a critical kind of calculation. Um, and that is a very, very common problem that on its own is responsible for 
close to 50% of the data breaches over the last several years. Then the last one, which I think is um, to your point about kind of APIs and, and applications being so closely tied together, this one might illustrate it a little bit better. A lot of the times if we're using something like a mobile app, there's almost no logic happening on the, on the mobile app itself. The mobile app is really a very thin client that doesn't really do much other than kind of, let's say, package a request, send it to a backend over an API, and then receive a response. So that could be something as simple as I want to view my profile in a mobile app. And maybe on that profile page, all I really have is my first and last name. But one of the common mistakes we've seen is that a lot of applications will actually send back to the API uh, front end all of the data around Jeremy. So I'm going to get something on my phone that just says Jeremy Snyder, but my phone actually receives an entire data record that is Jeremy Snyder, home address, phone number, email address, everything related to my profile. So this is known as excessive data exposure. Um, and it's a very common problem with APIs. And so um, that's another uh, huge cause of data breaches. When you're using a mobile app, no problem. The problem is, you know, hackers and bad actors don't play by those rules. It's very easy to find an API. If you use a mobile app over your home Wi-Fi, you can actually go onto your home router and you can see all the API calls that the mobile app used. And so you can just take those and plug them into any number of hacking tools or, uh, or plug them into software that you script yourself in order to access those APIs. And that's where, for instance, you would just get all the data back from the application backend. So those are some of the common, common problems in the API world, authentication, that kind of authorization question, and then all of the excessive data exposure through let's call it poor data handling or poor query practice. Does that kind of make sense, Mark? Absolutely, absolutely. So where do organizations start to work on API security? So yeah. do, is, is this part of a more of a holistic approach or do you, do you segment it out and, and work on it separately? There's two patterns that we've seen and we've only been working on this for about a year and a half. So there may be other patterns that we're not aware of as far as, let's say, like good programs to start the process of, of improving your API security. One is a holistic, let's focus on the code, focus on the application to work with the software development team, implement kind of secure coding practices, et cetera. That is a minority of organizations. In the majority of organizations where we're seeing challenges around API security, what's actually happened is that the developers have gotten out ahead of security. And this happens pretty frequently. We saw it on cloud starting as far back as, you know, 2014, 2015, you'd give people AWS accounts and before you knew it, they had done stuff you had never anticipated, right? And so security teams were often left trying to catch up. We're in a little bit that similar situation with APIs today. So what we've seen on that side, if that kind of fits where your organization is, or maybe like the right approach for kind of your organizational culture, one pattern that we've seen work pretty well is start with visibility. And there are many tools that you can use. There's open source, there's things like what we do, there's any of our competitors. A lot of us actually preach the same message of kind of starting with visibility as step one. So you can put some things out on a network. This is where something like a network sensor is actually particularly helpful to find APIs that exist within your networks or that are exposed at the edge of your networks, exposed to the public internet, the outside world. Once you've discovered APIs, it's a really good idea to bring that into kind of an inventory view and make sure that that is updating itself on kind of a regular ongoing basis, right? Because APIs will come and go. 
more typically they come and then they just get added to. Um, so you want to be aware of those changes that are happening over time. The second thing, once you've got kind of, let's say, a visibility and you've got an inventory view on things is you want some kind of assessment. You want to understand the behaviors of your APIs. Network layer visibility can give you some aspect of this. Application layer visibility is much more effective in trying to understand what's actually happening on your, on your APIs. But either way, you can start to kind of look at, you know, which ones are public facing, which ones are checking authentication, which ones are not checking authentication, which ones do we not have logging to a central location, things like that. So those are some of the assessment questions that I would look at as kind of a next step once you've got that. You can also observe kind of the popularity of the APIs, you know, which APIs exist but never get called. Cyber hygiene is something that doesn't get talked about very much because it's not a very, let's say, compelling message for a company to go out there and tell people like, hey, we exist as a company to help you shut stuff down. Like that's not a really like a, a oh, I don't know. I, I've never seen a company pitch that as their product value proposition. But um, cyber hygiene is actually really important in terms of reducing risk and exposure. Um, so, you know, if you think about that visibility and observability uh, perspective that we just talked about, you know, you'll, you'll see APIs that exist but don't actually have traffic. And you may want to retire them and shut them down or go talk to the owners of those APIs and try to understand what's going on. And then I think the next phase is really to start to think about protection. With that observability and you know which ones are popular, which ones are public, which ones might have PII flowing through them, you can think about what the right approach is for security. And for some organizations that will be very network centric, for others that'll be a more heavy focus on things like authentication and authorization like we talked about a little while ago, um, really just depends on the org, which path they think fits best for their scenario. But that's kind of the path that we've seen, right? So visibility, inventory, assessment, you know, maybe some observability and prioritization, and then you implement security controls. And I think that approach works for a lot of organizations. Um, I want to ask about how Firetail's platform kind of addresses all those um, kind of issues there. But before that, sure. can you give me just rough numbers of like when you go into an organization, and let's just say this is an enterprise with you know, a few thousand employees. I, I, I know the numbers are going to be all over the place, but let's just, you know, kind of come up with a, a scenario. What, yeah. what kind of numbers of APIs are, are, are you discovering what, whether, they're, whether they're active or not? Yeah, I think a good kind of rule of thumb that we've seen is that when you have, let's say, one homegrown application that is running on a modern, let's say, cloud platform, you end up with something in the 10 to 30 API range. Um, for a single application. And of course, the larger the user base for that application is that number sprawls. Because uh, what ends up happening is if you think about, you know, one application, um, people start to break down the critical parts of it into individual services that each then become their own APIs. Mm -hmm. um, and so you'll scale those out. And that's a way to kind of reduce single points of failure or reduce choke points in application performance, etc. But yeah, kind of, let's say like, you know, 20-ish on average per application. And then you think about the size of the organization. So let's take, you know, a couple thousand person organization with 10, uh, 10 homegrown, you know, in-house applications or custom applications that they're using. You could easily be in the 200 to 300 API range um, just for, you know, what is kind of not that large of an enterprise organization, right? And of course, when you get into 
an organization that's like a global multinational, tens of thousands of employees, you're, you're very quickly into the, um, maybe not into the tens of thousands, but you're into the thousands of APIs easily. Yeah, I, you know, we we were talking earlier about uh, Trados and the fact that, uh, you know, I, I work with a, another technology provider in the industry, MemoQ, and okay. one of the critical critical success factors in our space is connectability with other platforms, right? And mm -hmm. if, you know, it's, it, it oftentimes that's the leading question is like, hey, we have these 13 different platforms and you need to be able to connect with them. And if you can't, then it, it's a non-starter, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and so, I mean, just in, in, from where we sit, we, we see that and it's, the number's not going down. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no. So, um, on that line, Mark, I mean, when you get that question nowadays, are people asking for, you know, they may ask for pre-canned integrations, but at least what I've seen, and I'd be curious if you've seen the same, the next question is, okay, well, if you don't have a pre-canned integration, do you have an API? Yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. And then, and then, and then what's it going to cost if we decide to build something custom, but you got to have the, the API is the, is the first step, right? So, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let, let's go to the inventory piece. Um, is that something that Firetail helps, help, helps out with? Yeah. Yeah. So we currently do this for AWS. We are working on support for other cloud platforms as our customer base expands. But what we do on that side is we connect up to AWS environments in an agentless way. Um, it is a three-click, maybe four-click integration um, that deploys an automated kind of scanner onto your AWS environment. Uh, it doesn't cost you anything to run it or anything like that. Um, and it will go through a number of kind of these modern container slash serverless constructs, look for APIs, use some of the network telemetry data, and then build up that list for you. So that's kind of the visibility and the inventory piece there. Um, so that's, yeah, we do that today. We're working on other cloud platforms, as I mentioned. Okay. And then I'm assuming that, you know, you have the inventory and you have a dashboard of sorts. I'm just, you know, it's making an assumption yeah. here. Um, yeah. But the the next step would then be able to kind of prioritize based on some of the metrics that you talked about, you know, the volume of use or the in, the inactivity um, and the type of use, et cetera. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so we actually give you three ways to prioritize. It's up to you which ones make the most sense for you, obviously. Um, one is we assess each API individually in terms of some of those questions I mentioned earlier. Is it public? Is it checking authentication, et cetera? Another one is just kind of volume of usage. So you can just see the raw statistics on that. Um, the third one that we do is we actually do traffic classification on each API from the perspective of potentially malicious stuff. Um, and so some customers that might be the right thing. It's okay, these are the APIs where we're seeing the most attempted breaches or the attempted um, attacks. So you've got kind of three options on how you want to slice and dice or how you want to prioritize and look at that. Excellent. And then in terms of remediation, do you yeah. provide any type of support or is there, yeah, let's just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, this is an area where I'm actually really proud of what our teams come up with. So we kind of took a step back with, with our development team and, you know, they are developers. And I asked them like, hey, you're building APIs. How do people build APIs today? And how should we think about that? Because we started with the approach of really trying to almost reverse engineer the causes of what's gone wrong. And we, we arrived at those three things we talked about earlier around, you know, authentication, authorization, and data exposure. And we kind of have a, an opinion that you really have to sit at the application layer. 
our team decided that that's where we want to focus our remediation and protection efforts. And what we've done is we've built a library of open source tools there that sit in line and can provide you with all the data that you need to assess an individual API call and tell you this call is not properly authenticated. This call um, shouldn't, shouldn't be processed because of a permissions problem or this looks like an attempted injection, like any of these potential attack vectors that we've seen. There's a list called the OWASP API top 10. We've very much built around trying to prevent those attempted breach types. And, uh, and we've done it at the application layer. So this one is an agent-ish solution. So it's not a traditional kind of server agent, uh, but it is a code library that does need to be included in your application. Uh, it's open source, as I mentioned. Um, so it is uh, uh, licensed out there for anybody who wants to go grab it. Um, by default, it will send logs to us. And that's part of, you know, where we actually provide a commercial offering in addition to kind of a free small tier for startups and individual users. Uh, but you can also tell it to send the logs directly to a source that you control if that's what you want to do. Um, but, you know, that's really up to you how you want to use that. But what it will do is it will sit in line and it will look for those main three things that we talked about. So authentication, authorization, and data handling, it will sit in line and it will check for problems with those three uh, issues. So, you know, you just said you came back, back from RSA and yeah. maybe one one third of the exhibitors or the, the, the companies that were present there were focused on API security. I would not say that they were focused on API security. I would say they were adding API security to their messaging. There are gotcha. definitely companies that are focused on API security, don't get me wrong, but there's a lot of, let's say, traditional network security companies that are now throwing API security into the mix. And there are pen testing companies that are throwing API scanning into the mix as well. There's actually a good use case around that. Don't get, I, I have no qualms with that. I do think a lot of the traditional kind of network security companies that are throwing API security into the mix, it's like, great. From a visibility and discovery perspective, sure. You know, there's a lot of use in the network telemetry data that those companies gather. But from an actual protection standpoint against unauthorized or poor data handling, they don't have the visibility. So to them, a lot of the breaches to date will look like normal API traffic. Um, so, you know, it's a little bit of a two-edged sword. On the one hand, it's great because these are you know, large companies that have been around for a long time, they have a loud voice, they have a big customer base, and they're raising awareness about the importance of API security. On the other hand, I just don't, I don't think that their approach is, is really the right one for a lot of customer scenarios. It might be right for some, for sure. But, you know, against those three problem types in particular, I think it's, it's kind of an in, insufficient solution. It's a great starting point, but maybe not, not a full suite. Makes sense. And, and thanks for the clarification. Yeah, um, we, you know, we just spoke about integrations um, in terms of the apps that are used by uh, various organizations. Yeah. Um, what about on, on your side? Is, yeah. Are your customers asking for the ability to integrate into their, their SIM or any SOAR or anything like that? We haven't had SOAR yet, but SIM, absolutely. Uh, ticketing systems is another very popular one. Um, so, you know, we allow customers to kind of define metrics, thresholds certain patterns that they're looking for that they want to be alerted about, you know, maybe they want, uh, we've also had things like messaging, like um, Slack and Teams, you know, they want a real-time push notification of something going on. But ticketing has been a big one and Sim's been, been another big one for sure. Um, and of course, you know, we also built just a generic API integration. You can kind of send an outbound push into anything via webhook. 
Um, and we also have an inbound integration uh, hook point as well that customers can send data into Firetail. Excellent. Um, yeah, your company is relatively new or young. Correct. Um, yeah. yeah. And so what is your biggest challenge uh, with, with, you know, because I, I, for an enterprise uh, to trust a vendor, a lot of times sure. they're looking for a track record and things like that. Yeah. But um, yeah, yeah, what are your biggest challenges? Yeah, look, I mean, that probably is the biggest challenge. Although I don't know, the trust factor is certainly there. We've actually just completed our SOC 2 type 1. We're starting our SOC 2 type 2 observation period very shortly here. Um, I know from previous work in the enterprise that there is a lot of focus on trust and data handling. We've actually built our entire kind of, let's say, corporate stack and our entire security operations, just like, you know, procedures and, and standard operating procedures and whatnot around GDPR. Our company is split between uh, US, Canada, Finland, and, and uh, Ireland. Um, so we've kind of embraced GDPR from a privacy and data handling perspective, and then SOC 2 from an operational perspective, and uh, partway down that path. Otherwise, you know, I think the things that I, I certainly point to to try to give confidence to customers who are considering us is, you know, one, our team has a solid track record of operating an enterprise, but two, you know, the backers that have come on board. Uh, Paladin Capital is one of the most respected names in cybersecurity investment. They're behind us. Um, and Zscaler is a, a uh, you know, very large, um, I would call them one of the kind of pillar uh, enterprise cybersecurity companies up there with the likes of CrowdStrike and Microsoft and a number of others. And they're also a strategic investor in Firetail. Um, and certainly, you know, they had the trust to put their money in us. And, uh, you know, hopefully some corporations will look at that and, and get a warm and fuzzy inside. But otherwise, we would invite you to both put our product and put our organization through its paces. You know, if you want to try us out, if you're considering working with us, we absolutely invite everybody go through a POC, see what the experience is like. If we meet your expectations, awesome. If we don't, then, you know, we apologize for having you having invested the time into checking it out and we will learn from it a new better. But, uh, you know, generally speaking, that awareness that that kind of track record, those are challenges for a young company like ours. And we're just going to do our best to kind of overcome them in those ways. Do partnership programs, so for example, with AWS or other large uh, cloud providers, do they help with the credibility things at all? I think to some extent, and, you know, we are partway down that path. We just submitted our first marketplace offering and we're going through kind of earning our competencies and so on. I think where they actually help more than anything is they help a lot of people buy from small enterprise. You know, the AWS Marketplace program actually is kind of a stamp of approval on let's say the architecture of an application and where it's running, you know, when you submit an application to AWS Marketplace, it does get a well-architected review. It does get a quick security check. So for a lot of buyers, that's actually, that is a good validation point. It's great you brought that up. Um, just curious, like the other cloud uh, providers, for example, Azure, you know, I mean, they're, they're on a yeah. pair right now. I mean, yeah. where does that fit into your, your roadmap? It's definitely on there. I just personally, I'm not as experienced with it. So the team working on that, I'm not the expert to, to be able to talk about where we are with Azure. Awesome. Jeremy, let me ask you this, you know, how about on the technical side, when you're meeting with prospective customers, what are their top one, two, three questions or concerns? Yeah. 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 We definitely get questions about kind of, let's say data privacy. Uh, we get questions about um, disaster recovery and uptime for sure. Um, and we also get questions about, you know, there's still some customers who are sensitive about using a SaaS provider as a security vendor. 
Um, so I'll talk about those three each individually real quick. So on a data privacy perspective, we are more than happy to show you our architecture um, under NDA, of course. Um, and we'll show you, you know, where we have encryption, what encryption controls we're using, what we're doing for secrets management for um, anything around, let's say, the security of the platform itself. From an operational perspective, we will, we're more than happy to share our backup, um, uh, sorry, our backup and disaster recovery and business continuity plans with you. Um, and then finally, on that last point around, let's say, customers who are maybe on the fence about whether whether SaaS, whether multi-tenant SaaS is the right place for them for a, a cybersecurity solution. Um, I think, you know, one of the reasons we get that concern, and I think a lot of cybersecurity SaaS companies get that concern is there's a fear that, hey, you know, this company is actually helping us by helping us manage, let's say, our API security. So in their data, in their platform, they know which APIs are potentially vulnerable. And don't get me wrong, we have a number of controls in our own product so that our team just can't see all of that data on its own. There are, you know, customer support uh, permissions controls. You can grant our customer support team access when on an as-needed basis, et cetera. But I get the concern in general being that that data does live inside our system. So now are we a target for somebody who wants to break into you or your organization via an API that you learn about through us? That is a fair control, or sorry, a fair question. And, you know, if you are not convinced by the answers on the first two things that we just talked about, um, we actually do private installations as well. So we have a 100% infrastructure as code, fully automated deployment model that you can run on the cloud provider of your choice if you want to own and run this yourself. Obviously, if you do that, you are signing up to kind of the upgrade cycle and the upkeep of the infrastructure for that. Um, so that that's a trade-off that you can decide if it's if it's the right thing for you, though, we're absolutely happy to work with you on that side as well. Awesome. Well, hey, if any of our listeners wanted to get more information about Firetail uh, or connect with you, what's the best way to do that? I mean, just firetail.io is our website. I'm just jeremy at firetail.io. Uh, and if you don't necessarily want to talk to us, but you want to understand kind of the API security space, we are if you, like if you're not ready to have a conversation, no worries. We're publishing an API security report uh, that will go out at the very beginning of May uh, 2023. Uh, free download PDF analysis of the last kind of 10-ish years of API security incidents. Some good data in there about kind of the scale of the incidents, the scale of data exposures, some of the root causes we talked about, some best practices and recommendations for how you might look at them. And I would invite anybody to check that out as well. Awesome. Well, hey, Jeremy, thanks so much for taking the time to be on Secure Talk. It's been a real pleasure, Mark, and great to connect with somebody with whom I have so much in common and yet we've never crossed paths, but great to meet you today at last. Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance.